of things, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, we saw how Jesus made new wine at a wedding feast. You remember that? That was his first miracle. And we said how the, the purpose of that miracle and that sign that Jesus performed was to show how with his arrival, the overflowing of those old stone jars of purification, the overflowing of them with wine uh, was a sign which showed that not only does Jesus have the power to turn water into wine just by his will, but he is also showing that those stone jars of purification which belonged to the old covenant and the washing uh, were obsolete in the Messianic age. Now that the Messiah had come, this new blessing of what Christ brings had dawned, and the old covenant, which was symbolized by those stone jars of purification and the, and the blessings that God had given in the old covenant were surpassed by Jesus. The wine overflows, and it is a new wedding marriage feast between Christ and his church in chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, we saw how Jesus cleansed the temple. And in his going to cleanse the temple, this temple made by hands of the old covenant, uh, we were to see that Christ is now the one and only true mediator between God and man. Because Christ is, what, the true temple of God. So no longer is it this temple made by hands in this old covenant, but now that Christ has come, he cleanses out the temple, and he says, if any man is to come to God, it is going to be through me. And if anyone is going to meet God in his temple and dwell with God, it is going to be through me, since I am the true temple. Christ alone surpasses and fulfills all of those things about the temple in the old covenant. Then we saw in chapter 3, verse 21, John tells us how Jesus fulfilled these new covenant promises of a new birth, a birth by water and by the Spirit that was promised in the Old Covenant. Remember, God gave them the law and the prophets in the Old Covenant, but that law and that prophets and, and the Word of God was never actually placed in their heart. They were never regenerated fully by that old covenant. We needed a new birth that would change us from the inside out, a, a, a being reborn and a recreated, a heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh placed in us where God's law would now be written on our hearts and in our minds and we would live before him in light of that new birth. And Jesus says that that would come about just as the serpent was risen the bronze serpent in the wilderness and under the old covenant so that people looked upon it would be healed. He says, now I will come and I will be lifted up on the cross so that those of you who now look to me alone will be forgiven of your sin and healed. Jesus surpasses all of it. He fulfills all of it. And here in chapter 3, verse 22 to 36, we see John again draw us to another aspect of Christ the Messiah fulfilling all of those promises. And we see how Jesus surpasses even John the Baptist, who is called the greatest of the Old Testament 
prophets, the last among the Old Testament prophets, Jesus surpasses all of the prophets in the Old Testament, including John the Baptist. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 puts it like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That was a blessing, right? That was good. God spoke through these prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is better, infinitely, infinitely better. And he has come. And so here, John is saying that all of the blessings and the glory which belong to the old covenant the law, the prophets, the promises, all of it was fulfilled by Christ. All of those things were types and shadows of God's promised Messiah. And now that Christ has come, only Christ can give salvation. The old covenant could never save anyone. The Old Testament saints, one of the things they realized is no matter how hard they tried to keep the law, no matter how many sacrifices they made, no matter how often they went to the temple, no matter how many good deeds they did, no matter how much they prayed, no matter how much they tried to contribute, that law and that old covenant could never save them. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year of sacrifices, they had no hope. They couldn't be saved by it. They needed a redeemer. And so you can see this when you look at the old covenant. God promised them blessings in the Old Covenant. And you know what? Sometimes he would bless them. But what would happen is their blessings would come and go depending on their faithfulness. So what ultimately happened to Israel? They would be blessed for a season. And then when they would be unfaithful, God would bring his judgment on them and they would lose that blessing. Ultimately, right? Babylon and Assyria would come and judge them. Their purification was never complete under the law. They would do these sacrifices and they would believe that they were cleansed by them. And for a moment they would have been, but their conscience could never truly be cleansed because what would happen after they left the temple? They would sin again and again and again. And so they're always plagued by their sin. The temple. They would go to the temple and there was the Holy of Holies where they would go to meet with God and God would come before them. But in order to meet with God, the people could actually never go into the Holy of Holies, could they? The only one that could go into the Holy of Holies was a high priest. 
and the high priest would have to go and he'd have to make sacrifices for himself because he was a sin and then he would go into the holy of holies and for a moment he would be able to be in the presence of god but then as the high priest but never the people just by this mediator but as this high priest went in and then he came out he would sin again so bad was it that i i've heard and it said and read that they would maybe even tie a rope to him so that when he went into the Holy of Holies, if he actually died and God struck him down because of his sin, they would have to pull him out because they didn't want to go into the Holy of Holies and get him. And so this temple, while God said he will build, have this temple built where they could meet with him, it was always temporary. And, it, and as a tabernacle, it would move. They would move it from place to place before the temple was actually built. But even when the temple was built, their access to God's holy throne was very limited. And they themselves, the people, could never go into it. God met with his people in just this one place. And the law. The law was given to them but it was given to them as a tutor because they could never obey the law. They could never keep the law. And so what God wanted to do for the people in all of these old covenant promises and all of these pictures of types and, and shadows that pictured the coming Messiah, what God was doing in the old covenant is he was saying, look, you need a redeemer. You need a Messiah because at the end of the day, you are unable to be reconciled to me on your own. They were constantly confronted with their inability, constantly confronted with God's holiness and confronted with their own sin. And God says, I am going to ultimately show you a grace and a mercy that you can't even imagine. And I am going to show it to you by sending you a redeemer, sending you a savior, my only son, who will fulfill and surpass all of those things that I told you in the old covenant that you could not do. He will do them and he will redeem you. This is what Christ came to do and so John the Baptist is here, and he's this last Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant figure. And he is going to show us here, John, is how Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, even from John's perspective, the Baptist, totally surpasses it. Like, it, it, to see John the Baptist's response here in this passage it should tell us a lot about how we should think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is kind of what I want to bring out this morning. Watch John the Baptist's response, and you will understand how you and I should see Christ. You will see in John the Baptist, really I looked at three things here. So much we can learn from this, but three things I want to, four things to draw out. One is, John the Baptist's humility. John the Baptist's humility before God. The second 
is John the Baptist's joy. And the third is John the Baptist's steadfastness to Christ. Humility, joy, steadfastness to Christ. He must increase, I must decrease, he says. So those are kind of the three things. And the, the fourth thing is really the second half of the passage is really why. And it has to do with how he viewed Christ. Why was John humble, joyful, steadfast? It's because as he thought about Christ the Messiah, he realized just how small and helpless he was. So this is how we'll go through this passage. So let's, let's hear it read, and then we'll talk first about his humility. John 3, 22. He's talking about after this, that conversation with Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What a powerful testimony there. And so we... And so we have here this conversation between John and his disciples. Before John, as you read there, and I think it's verse 24, was ultimately put in prison and, and then beheaded. And this is John the evangelist who wrote this gospel. This is just his way of saying this little note to his readers, saying, 
These things that I'm writing to you while they're not in those other gospels that you have read, this is prior because those other gospels begin their recording of Jesus' Galilean ministry. If you read them, they begin their recording of it when John was already in prison. And so John, the evangelist, is writing this and he puts this little note in there and says, what I'm telling you is what happened with Jesus before he was put in prison. So I'm not contradicting them, I'm just giving you a different aspect of that writing. And so after Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, um, which is in the urban area of Judea, um, we don't know how much time lapsed, but Jesus and his disciples went to this more rural area of the Judean countryside where John says these disciples of Jesus, and we say it says Jesus was baptizing, but you can see in chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus didn't actually baptize. It's actually his disciples were doing the baptism. And so these disciples of Jesus were being baptized, and also all of these people were coming to him, and there was John the Baptist was there as well, still fulfilling his calling, and he's baptizing people who came to him at a place called Anon near Salem. And John says the reason they chose that place is because there's a lot of water there. Now, as Baptists, we Baptists that practice immersion, okay, so we fully go under. The fact that he says that there was a lot of water there, this is not a proof text for immersing in baptism. Um, I mean, you people will want to use it that way, but it doesn't mean there was actually one deep body of water there where you could immerse someone. Um, that's how we practice it, but can't read that into the text. Um, we don't know if that's the case, but I think it's unlikely um, because, for one thing, you know, when you look at how many people were baptized on the day of Pentecost, you know, 3,000 people, what is the likelihood, I, I actually did the calculation, if you were able to fully immerse 3,000 people in one day, one minute per person, it would take you 50 hours to baptize 3,000 people. Okay, if I'm doing it myself constantly. So this idea that it's a deep body of water immersion, it's not in this text. You I mean, there are other reasons we do it, but I don't want you to use this as a, as a proof text for that. Um, the point is, is that there were actually many streams of water there. And in fact, that's what Anon means when it's transliterated from Aramaic. It means a place of many streams, okay? So John and his disciples, they're baptizing people who came there, and a discussion arises between a Jew and some of John's disciples, and they're talking about purification, Jewish purification and the rite of purification. So this, this had to do with all of those ceremonial washings that took place. And if you read Mark 7, 1 to 5, Jesus is being confronted by these Pharisees, and they're accusing the Jesus' disciples of not washing their hands. And Mark lists all of these things that Jesus says about your ceremonies, washing hands and this and that, cleansing. So this is what they're talking about. And they're probably talking to John, saying, John, how does your baptism relate to purification within Judaism? This is probably their conversation. 
We don't know all of what it is, but that's likely what they're asking him. Um, how is your baptism purifying, and how does that tie into all of these other old covenant things that we do? So, they sought to have this discussion with John, but after the discussion, the disciples of John leave that discussion with this Jew, and, and they actually go to John the Baptist now, and it kind of spurred on a thought in their mind. And, and the thought in their mind when they came to John was, after that discussion was over, they were looking and they were seeing Jesus and how Jesus was baptizing and more people were now going to Jesus than to John. And so their concern, they're not thinking their concern over how is John's baptism different than Jesus's. That's not their concern. Their concern is actually why are more people going to Jesus? Their concern is whether John's ministry is being overshadowed by Jesus. That's their concern. It's, it's not so much the issue of the, the baptism. They're basically saying, Rabbi, why are we doing this? And what is the point if people are no longer coming to us to be baptized? Everyone is going now to Jesus. Yeah, and you know this is what they're thinking because the exaggeration tells you this is what they're thinking. That's the issue. They say, everyone is going to Jesus. Are, is everyone going to Jesus? Are all people going to Jesus? No, but that's what you do when you're kind of bitter or, or upset. You, you make these exaggerations and they say, John, all these people, everyone's going to Jesus now. What's going on? What, what is it? Why aren't more people coming to us? Why is our influence shrinking in comparison to Jesus? And John the Baptist says this. This is an axiom again. One that, as we'll see, this hit me as a minister of God's word, but it's an axiom that applies to each of us, whether or not you're in a a ministry role. But the axiom is this in verse 27, John answered them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. How about that? You cannot receive even one thing unless it is given you from God. As far as John is concerned, his ministry, however long or short, whether it's growing or shrinking, whether there were many converts coming or few converts coming, as far as John is concerned, none of that is a product of his own doing at all. It is actually from God. So convinced he is of this that he puts forth this recognized truth, not even one thing unless from heaven. It is God's to give, 
not his to claim or to expect. John says, I have no expectations or claims aside from the expectation that God will do his perfect plan through me. That's something that we all need to rest in. We all need to come to terms with this. And, and as a pastor, I think Satan would love nothing more than for pride and a competitive spirit to derail a gospel ministry. And we're prone to it. I don't know if it is just a default conversation starter at pastor's conferences, but if you go to one and you meet an old friend and you talk to them from the past, a question that comes up inevitably asked by your peers, and it's even one that I've asked other pastors, oh yeah, how, how large is the congregation you serve? How, how many people are there? And every time I ask the question, I kick myself and I think, why did I really ask it? Is it really nerves? Am I really trying to start a conversation? But what did I really ask the question for? And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's simple. We want to compare ourselves to other, other people. We, we want to compare our ministries. We want to say, am I doing okay? Is there something this person's doing that maybe I should be doing? Why is God blessing that ministry and not mine? Why is that church big and, and this one small? Or the other side, it could also be, depending on how the answer goes, boy, at least I have a bigger church than that guy does, right? At least I'm pastoring more people. Man, I mean, there's all kinds of pride and reasons why we bring these things up and ask this question. And like I said, though, that's a problem in ministry, and it was for John's disciples, but it's also, it's also something that applies to all of us in different contexts. Because you may look at someone else in their life and say, why do they have all of those good things and I don't? What is it they're doing and what is it they did that gave them this particular thing in their life that I don't have? What am I doing wrong? Why is it, why is it I haven't accomplished that in life at that age that they did? Or why is it I don't have children, or why is it my family is messed up, or, you know, I mean, go on and on. Like, we always look and compare ourselves to other people, and we think that they are doing something that they've done in order to receive this blessing from God. And so it applies in all kinds of contexts. The axiom that John lays down here is at the end of the day, you can't receive one thing unless it is given to you from God. Which means this. You don't get what you deserve. I don't get what I deserve. What we deserve is to actually receive nothing but condemnation. So that means if everything you get comes from God, and it must come from God, then what you get 
is never something that you have earned because you're not getting what you actually deserved, right? So you don't deserve it. You don't, you shouldn't think that you have received something that you have earned. Everything we receive is something we receive from God and it is according to God's grace, not according to our merit. We merit death. God shows grace. And so John is saying, this is, this is the ministry that God has given to me, and I've just humbly received it. And the reason that's important is because a lot of churches are destroyed because of that pride that creeps in. A lot of ministries and churches and people are destroyed because Satan would like to take that pride, not humility, and he would like to turn it and twist it. And the way that he twists it is this. I was thinking about this actually as I drove in this morning. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you know how Satan twists it? He twists it in, a, in, in one very blatant way, and he changes one word, and pastors and ministries or whoever will think, and they'll change it to say, I will build your church. That's bad. That's bad, right? It's not John the Baptist shouldn't be saying, I will build your church. Jesus says, I will build my church. So there's a blatant way in which we can misconstrue and misunderstand that the church is somehow our church. You hear pastors say that too, and I know they're not, and I've said it, this is not my church. You are not my people. I heard one pastor once, I went to a church, he said, my peeps, he called them my peeps. There's nothing about this that is yours or mine. You don't belong to me. I don't belong to you. This is not our church. This is Christ's church. And Jesus says, I will build my church. No one should say, I will build your church, God. Okay? The other way is more sinister that it can be twisted. It's more hidden. And it's this. Let me see if you catch the difference pastor or whoever might say, I will build my church. I will build my church. There are people like that too. They look at the church. It's one thing to say, I will build your church, Jesus. It's another thing for a pastor to say, I will build my church. That's evil. That is not the way that God wants us to consider being a part of his church. John understood that. John understood that everything he does in this life, he has done because it is God's to give. Not even one thing can be given unless it is given by God. And Jesus says he will build his church. And this is how John understood his ministry. Because what happens often 
is when this pride creeps into a ministry, as it was creeping in with John's disciples, they begin to take pride in their ministry. So what takes center stage in a church like that is the ministry takes center stage. The teacher takes center stage. The influence that they're having takes center stage. Uh, celebrity takes center stage. All of these things begin to take center stage, and it becomes more about what they're doing than who the church actually belongs to and who you are supposed to be pointing people to do. And Satan takes that and he tempts us to exalt something, anything, exalt something, anything. I don't care what it is, Satan says, as long as it's not exalting Christ, he will let you exalt anything else. Not for John the Baptist. And this is something Paul talks about even in the early church. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 to 17, listen how he admonishes them. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean Paul says, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He's like, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So John says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness, back in John 3, 28, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Never claimed to be Christ. I am a voice crying in the wilderness, a voice that says, go to Jesus. That's his humility. And that should be the humility that marks each of us, beloved. That should be the fragrance that people have when they come here to our church, Christ's church, our gathering here together. See how easy this is, right? They should come into this church and they should see the fragrance of humility and love and the mind of Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. So John, humble, this is why he's joyful. Oh, it takes so much pressure off when you have that kind of humility and just trust the Lord. Only then can you actually be joyful. Do you realize that? If, if, you're, if you are not humble, you can't be joyful because you're always thinking that you need to do something else to achieve some kind of great thing. 
and you'll never be joyful because you're always pursuing your own dreams. But if you're just humble, you say, everything I have is from God, then you can actually be joyful because you can be content in what God has given you. And so this is, this is what John is kind of addressing, I think. There's a couple of things he's addressing here, but when he says in verse um, 29 there, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, he says, is now complete. Do you see what he's saying there? The friend of the bridegroom is a best man. When you go to a wedding, you, you, uh, I mean, I don't know, nowadays it's kind of strange where people try to take center stage at a wedding, but when you go to a wedding, the way it's supposed to be is there's a bride and there's a bridegroom. And the whole thing about the wedding is about the bridegroom and the bride. The best man is not, he's just there to help. He's just there to serve the bridegroom, to help him get ready, to help him do the things that need to be done, to make sure everything is organized, the food is there, the music's there, the, the people are there, everyone's getting what they need. This is all that the best man does. It's his whole responsibility is to serve the bridegroom. It's not to come into the wedding and say, look at me, <laughs> right? Put on his best clothes and look at me. I'm here at the wedding and I want people to talk to me and I want them to come to me and I want them to serve me. No, John says, listen, the bridegroom is the one who is coming for his bride. That's what this is about. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And you know what brings me joy? What brings me joy is when I see the bridegroom and I see him receiving his bride. That is what makes me happy. That's what brings me joy, John is saying. And now that I've done what I've been called to do, John says, and people and all people, as you say, disciples, are running to Jesus. That's all, that's all I want to do. That is my joy, John the Baptist says. And what he's also telling them, kind of indirectly by referring to this bride and this bridegroom, he's also, by referring to Jesus this way, he is telling them, that Jesus, this one, is Israel's king and Messiah. Isaiah 62, verse 4 to 5 says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
This is what John is saying. He's saying, this is the Messiah. This is him, the king of Israel. Hosea puts it like this, Hosea 2, 16 to 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. John the Baptist says, there he is. The bridegroom. And everyone's going to him. And I rejoice in that. And the New Testament, I won't read all these passages, but the New Testament picked right up on that after Jesus' resurrection. And you'll read in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Revelation, that Jesus is referred to as a bridegroom and the church as his bride. John's joy was tied to the glory of Christ. And so John the Baptist could say, this joy of mine is complete. My joy, not my ministry, the size of it, the influence, the longevity, the status, the converts, but my joy is that I've served the bridegroom faithfully to point people to him. Now, he must increase, I must decrease. Well, I mean, wow. Then the final lesson from John here is his, there's his humility and his joy and then his steadfastness. Do you see how this ties together? If you're humble and you receive from God what he gives, then you're thankful and joyful, then you can actually just be steadfast. No? Like, what's there to be afraid of, right? God has given you everything, and so now you can be steadfast and do whatever it is God has called you to do. Because you know you've got one mission, and this was John's mission, and he was totally steadfast in that calling. He finished the race. He finished strong. He stayed the course. He stayed focused. You know, Jesus says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and suffered the shame. You could say for John and for faithful Christians, for the joy set before us, we pointed people to the one who would go to the cross to die. I mean, that's it. That's it. That's your joy. That's my joy point people to Christ. John did it faithfully. So when he's pressured by his own disciples and he's pressured by opposition from King Herod when he's beheaded, when all others perceived John as a problem and Jesus as a threat to their success, John stayed the course. And the more people that went to Jesus the more John rejoiced, no matter what that meant for him. Boy, if 
the church could just think that way. Tell you. There is a, it's just a, you look at the church and so many of the problems are because of the pride of pastors and ministers. I have it. Pride, there's jealousy, there's pride. I don't, I don't think there's a pastor out there that doesn't have that. And the question is, is that something that we confess and bring before God and repent of and seek his face? Because until we do that, the church will not be, it will not be holy. The, the, uh, until pastors and myself to begin with repent of that kind of perversion in our thinking, um, we're going to have a hard time. And so I, I just, um, it's just humbling. This is how John saw it. And he was steadfast, let God do the work. And then finally, how else could he think about it? How can we look at it any differently in our own lives when we consider the majesty and the glory of Christ? And that's what you see in the second half here in this verse, in verse 31. You see him, he says, when all is said and done, and Jesus is here and everyone's going to him, and I rejoice at that, just people are coming to the bridegroom. He says, verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He, he's comparing himself to Christ. He says, who am I? Jesus is from above. He's above all. I'm of the earth. I'm earthly. I, I belong to the earth. I, I speak in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He, he's looking at himself in comparison to Jesus, and he's saying, I'm just a, I'm just a clay pot. I'm just dust. I, I am of this earth, but Jesus is not. Jesus, like he said in our scripture reading, we read it, Kevin, Jesus said, I am not of this world. I am not of this world. I am not of the earth. I am not... Here I am above all things. And John says, he is the one that needs to be listened to. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And yet you're not receiving his testimony. You want to receive my testimony. But he says, verse 33, whoever receives his testimony is setting his seal to this, that God is true. Not me. God is true. And the one from above gives you that truth. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, he gave the Holy Spirit to Christ without measure at all. He was completely united and filled with and one with the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, remember, spirit descends on him as a dove and 
remains on him, John the Baptist said. So the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, John says. And here is the point. Bring it all back to the gospel. Here it is. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the bridegroom? Whoever does not obey the Son, which is synonymous for believe, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, Jesus is the one. We're going to hear this over and over again. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the Redeemer. He's the Bridegroom. Look to him. Look to him, and you will be saved. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the blessing that we have found in Christ, the bridegroom, the one who loved us and the one who gave himself for us, the one who, who came to forgive us of our sin and to clothe us with his righteousness, to make us pure in his sight, dressed in white and washed thoroughly. Father, we have so much pride and we are so prone to it. We're so prone to jealousy and we're prone to selfishness and we're prone to focus on ourselves and so many different aspects of life. But really, at the end of the day, Father, when we think about these things and the truths laid out here, we know that we cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from you. And you are so good and so gracious that you give to us much more than we deserve. And you have given to us the one thing that matters and that is the most valuable of anything, and that is your son. You have given him to us, and he has laid down his life willingly to give himself for us as well. And then he gave us your spirit to dwell in us. Oh, what a gift, Father. You gave us yourself, your son, and your spirit. And because of that, we are at peace in you and reconciled to you. And we thank you, Father. And we know we don't deserve it. And so we receive it with humble, joyful, and steadfast hearts. We ask that you would bless us now as we even come to the Lord's table, as we're invited to come into your presence at, at the table to remember Christ and his sacrifice for us. We pray that we would do so and that you would be honored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.